I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I was introduced to Sam by a mutual friend, Esther, who's actually here tonight. Um, in the spring of 2017... Sam was about to bring out her first book of photographs, Deep Springs. And I'd heard a lot about Deep Springs. It was this, it's this all-male college deep in California where they tend cows by day and they weed marks by night, so I'd heard. And I'd always wanted to see it. it. And this was more like a tourist impulse. It was something more glamorous or deep than that. But Sam's pictures, the first time I saw it, and they were a revelation to me. They were sort of sexy and gentle and intimate and strange, and they were always... Never less than beautiful. And it's not just me who thinks this. MoMA started collecting her work, um, and the Barbican is currently showing a few pictures, well, 12, two walls, you say, um, at, um, in the new um, Masculinities exhibition, which just opened this week. So Sam has been one of the few women to even get into Deep Springs. The boys had to vote on whether they were allowed to have her or not, and she gained their trust slowly over months and made a sort of collaborative portrait with them of this century-old utopian idea of what education could, should, might, ought, ought to be. Deep Springs was incidentally about to become co-ed, so these are the last kind of days of this particular idea. And so immediately we see certain qualities in Sam. She's a journalist, but she's an artist, California is important to her. There's politics there. There's nature is important. And this is where I think Dorothea Lang comes in. Migrant Mother is the photograph that you all know. A woman going out to the landscape, her hand, a woman, um, gazing out, sorry, not going out. She's just sitting there. Her hand at her mouth, her children sort of folded around her like a Renaissance Madonna. And this was made in California in 1936 when Lang was working for the US government to document the Great Depression. So we have journalist, artist, California. So it seemed natural to me that Sam's next project should be a Dorothea Lang project, finding herself at the archive in Oakland, wondering what was in there, and finding hundreds, or thousands, right, thousands of photos um, that, that hadn't been seen yet or publicly known, and a Dorothea that no one really seemed to know about. And the result of this is Day Sleeper, this, um, the, this book that Sam has made from photos that she found cropped, arranged into this book that, for me, at least had this kind of mysterious and actually quite moving effect. I seem to cry in public a lot these days, but I found the book so moving that I, um, that I cried at the end of it. Um, and three photos from this book have been made, um, uh, have arrived at the New Lang uh, retrospective in MoMA in New York. So I'm really happy that Sam's here this morning to talk about, this evening, to talk about Lang, as well as hope about Deep Springs and Pennsylvania and this new project that she started there. Um, whew, I don't usually say that I cried in public. <laughs> anyway, um, Sam, now that, I've, um, now that everyone knows me intimately here, um, can you um, speak a bit more about how the Day Sleeper project began? Thank you. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. Thank you so much, and thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, it began really simply. I mean, I think Joanna mentioned that it seemed sort of like a natural next step after Deep Springs, but I had no idea that this would become a project. Um, I, I live... Um, a few miles away from where Dorothea Lang's personal archive is kept, um, and I had no idea 
that I that I lived so close um, until 2017. I had known Dorothea Lange um, from childhood, from my teenage years. I had seen Migrant Mother. Um, I actually wrote Did you about remember when you first saw it? I saw it. Um, it? I don't remember when I first saw the picture. I knew I had seen it before. I had to sit an exam in high school to be allowed entry into a summer program, an intensive summer program in photography. It was a government-funded program that really largely changed the course of my life. It allowed me to concentrate on photography in a way that I didn't um, think I'd be able to otherwise. And anyways, but the essay I had to write, and it was a surprise to me at the time, was an essay about migrant mother. Um, and that was when I was 15. So Dorothea has, <laughs> has been there in a way from the beginning. Um, and it's work, you know, as the first really sort of iconic uh, female photographer that I knew from a young age. Um, and I'd been returning to her work over the years. Of course, you study her in school. Um, and I had read several biographies of her. Um, but it wasn't until 2017 when I went to see an exhibition um, at a museum that was a few miles from my house um, in California, the Oakland Museum of California. Um, I'd actually never visited the museum before. I was new to California. I grew up actually like Dorothea Lange. I grew up on the East Coast. She was born in New Jersey and uh, spent her teenage years and early 20s um, between New Jersey and New York City. Um, that's New York City is largely where I spent my 20s. Um, at the, towards the end of my 20s, I moved to California. Um, and I saw advertise a Dorothea Lange exhibition at this museum. And I went. And one of the first things I saw was a sign saying that they were the holders of her personal archive. And they held 40,000 images. Um, and I was shocked um, by that number. Um, and just shocked to know that all of her personal belongings um, it didn't end up with her family. They're all in this archive. So cameras, negatives, notebooks, um, even, some, even some clothing. She had these beautiful, um, she loved the Southwest, and she collected um, jewelry, beautiful silver jewelry. And in almost every picture I've seen of her, there's one sort of beautiful silver bracelet that she wore around the same wrist her whole life. Um, and they have anyway, that. And they have that as well. <laughs> um, so they, ha they have this, these beautiful things. Um, and I was shocked because... The Dorothea Lange that I had come to know was the one that was accessible um, in public archives. So in the Library of Congress or the National Archives, any work that she did for the government ended up in those archives. But I had no idea that there was this huge um, So that's collection. why we all know Migrant Mother, right? Because there are no rights on that. Exactly. So we all know Migrant Mother, and it can be, I mean, you can go and you can make a print. You can download the file from the Library of Congress website, and you can make a print, and you can hang it in your house. She had no ownership um, over that image. Um, she was on assignment for the government um, and made that image, so that's why we see it everywhere, on postage stamps, on coffee mugs, on T-shirts, on um, any you know, advertisements. I think they've used it for Pepsi in the past. Anyway, um, that image has been everywhere and sort of <laughs> has, has gained. I mean, it's <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. It's such an iconography of America. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, right? There's nothing, in a way, more American. And, I mean, even Lang herself came to describe that image She's like, it's not even a picture or a photograph anymore. She said it's a phenomenon. Um, and I think, I think that's really true, that it was something larger than her, um, larger than a picture. Um, anyway, and so just out of curiosity, I contacted the museum and said, uh, can, I, can I visit the archive? Um, and immediately, um, and I had to sort of make an appointment fairly far in advance, but immediately when I went, um, I got to start sifting through binders of contact sheets. So they have this incredible um, catalog of contact sheets, and that's where I started my, just my looking. It wasn't even research, really. I didn't have anything in mind other than just to go look. And Did you even know where to start? I, I mean, if you've got 40,000, I mean, where do you? Oh, early work. <laughs> you know, it's, the, it's the first binder, volume one, early work. Um, and I was shocked that here, it was all personal pictures of her family. Um, and, and one of them is this. On the, the cover of the book, this is the picture of her five-year-old son. Um, and I had never seen any of these pictures before. I never even imagined her making work of There were these beautiful portraits of her two boys, her first husband, Maynard Dixon, who was a, a painter. Um, he loved the Southwest, too, and they often made trips there together. Um, they took trips to Lake Tahoe together. Um, so of the landscape, of the California landscape, of nature, of their 
family, of friends. Um, soon after she moved to California, well, actually, she, had, she never had any intention of moving to California. She um, had planned to see the world. She had planned uh, with a girlfriend of hers. They were in their early 20s. Um, you know, this was, she was born in 1895, so this was in the late teens. They had planned to travel around the world together. And the first stop on the boat was California. Um, and the day after they got there, they were pickpocketed and they lost everything. <laughs> and so Dorothea had been working. Um, she had somehow gotten the idea as a teenager that she wanted to be a photographer. She says, I don't know where that idea came from, but I just like held to it. And, and she assisted two photographers, um, Arnold Ghent and Clarence White in New York. Um, and so she had some rudimentary skills through assisting at that point. And she landed in California, had no money, and the next day she went out and got a job in a photo lab and ended up staying there the rest of her life. It wasn't until the very end of her life that she got to finally make that trip around the world. She traveled with her second husband, Paul Taylor, um, extensively at the end of her life. Um, but I mean, it's, it's remarkable. And, and at that point, she, within a couple of years of, sort of landing in California, she opened up a portrait studio. Um, so she wasn't initially this documentary photographer that we've come to know her as, that she, for about 10 years, um, operated one of the like, leading portrait studios in San Francisco. Um, it's remarkable that, like, that if you, um, you know, wanted your portrait made by the best, you went to Dorothea Lang. Hmm. Um, and she knew how to attract customers. She operated this sort of very bohemian. Is this um, one of them? Yeah, that's one of her. So portraits I, from her studio. This is sort um, of the sort of thing she was making. It's actually how she met her uh, first husband. She sort of. Oh, she took a photo of him. No, it was just like she, her studio was like the hangout spot in town. Um, ah. She cultivated this sort of like very bohemian sort of um, downstairs where people would come, writers, artists, um, people would just hang out, mm. and then upstairs is where she had the studio. So. Um, she said she heard his cowboy boots. She would hear them sort of clicking on the floor um, and was always curious about him. And then one day sort of worked up enough courage to talk to him. He was 20 years older than she was. Um, anyway, I just, all this to say, like I discovered this whole other Dorothea Lang that I hadn't known before. I knew her um, as a documentarian, which I learned was a word that she actually disliked. She didn't think documentary did her work justice. Um, she thought it was too, it narrowed of her practice in a way and you know that but that's how I had known her and I think that's how most of us had known her as this um, woman who made migrant mother um, and then made all these library of congress images that were sort of when she was hired by the farm security administration to document the great and the aftermath of the great depression um, but and really I discovered that that work which um, you know seems to have occupied so much of our um, imagination and knowledge of her was only four years of a 40 plus year career. Um, so just immediately I was very excited about what I was seeing um, and knew just I wanted to go back and spend more time there. Um, and so that was the that was the beginning of something that I, I didn't know would be a project. I just completely fell sort of head over heels in love with um, with really her and and these pictures. Hmm. The, the, so Day Sleeper is sort of billed as a, so you've got both your names on the spine, Dorothea and Sam, and I, so it, we talked about it being, it's a sort of like a collaboration, I was wondering if you, if that's how you thought about it, and what ways that sort of came out in the book, and what things you tried not to do, and what things you particularly wanted to do with that collaboration with her. Because when you're collaborating with the dead, like, you can have so much power. <laughs> what doesn't, do? It doesn't feel like a fair collaboration, does yeah. it? Initially, I didn't think about it as a collaboration. Initially, I just thought other people have to see these pictures. I want to share these with other people. And um, around the same time, I started talking to a curator um, at the Museum of Modern Art who was planning to do a Dorothea Lange retrospective. Um, the last time Dorothea Lange's work was shown at MoMA in New York was in 1966. Um, she had a retrospective there. It actually opened three months after she died. She had been working on this show with a curator at MoMA for two years. Um, she was very ill with uh, cancer of the esophagus, and he was coming out to California, and they were planning the show together. Um, anyway, she died in October, and the show opened in January, but she had had planned the entire show at that point. Um, 
but anyway, so it's it's long overdue that she's she's finally gotten a show again. But they've organized a show um, from their collection. But the curator was curious to talk and see what I was seeing in Oakland's archive, um, and that's where um, I sort of had the idea of making a book. And over time, I started to see it as a collaboration, or you know, I'm still sort of finding maybe the right word for, for what it is, just what it is. I essentially became like immersed in her world um, that I um, started printing out. I had sort of made a lot of iPhone pictures of the archive so I could just sit with them longer and see, um, you know, I, I can spend a very long time in archives and, um, and you know, the, the Oakland Museum isn't open enough hours to accommodate <laughs> me. Um, so I'd sort of started making pictures that I could look at and spend time with at home and started printing them out and putting them up on my walls and eventually my studio became four walls, floor to ceiling of Dorothea Lang. And so I just sort of walk into this room and immerse myself in, in Dorothea's world and I realized eventually what I was doing is I was seeing through her. That I wasn't going out and making pictures into the world but what I was doing is I was looking at the world through what she had left behind and it became this sort of second looking. I don't know how to better describe it. Um, but I, I, was seeing, I was seeing through her, but then I was also seeing things that I would have been attracted to in my own practice. Or, um, and so those were the things that started to stick. But I think also I was really surprised to find that she was making work in a similar way um, to the way I might work, that even in just the way she moved, um, she worked with three different cameras um, for a lot of her life. When she was older, she had to give up large format cameras. But for example, when she was young, she worked with two large format cameras, um, one handheld 4x5 camera. I mean, if you know a sort of 4x5, they're very heavy, they're very bulky, and to handhold one is a huge undertaking. She worked with, um, and they're often a press camera around that time, a Graflex 4x5. She worked with another large format that she put on a tripod and then a more hand um, held camera, a medium format camera, um, which is remarkable because she was also a very small woman and had suffered polio as a child and so was left with a disability, so she walked with a limp. And um, Anyway, so to not only you know um, manage those cameras on your own when you're sort of um, fully physically able um, is remarkable that she was able to do it. Um, the stamina she had is incredible. But I saw her working with this 4x5 camera, which is a camera um, that I had long used, and moving through the world and sort of responding to people. You could see her in her contact sheets, um, sort of starting and putting the camera down and like allowing people to see her, um, and then slowly getting closer and closer. You could see the thing that she was after in the distance often, um, and she would slowly make her way um, to that point. Um, as she got more comfortable, and I think as the people sort of started for, to forget that she was there. You can't, you can't really be invisible with a large format camera. Um, and so, and so I, I was really struck by that because I felt like, you know, that I had made the same moves too. Um, so it sort of solves the problem of photography, doesn't it? The idea that, like, are you, are you supposed to be seen or not seen? Are you yeah. supposed to be there or not there? And then how does that change what you're seeing? I suppose if you do just take it very slowly, it, yeah, it solves that problem. Yeah, yeah. But you worked that out yourself already in your previous work. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you knew what you were seeing. I do. I did sort of. Yeah, I felt a real connection. I was like, oh, she. She. she, she, she we both figured this out. Yeah. Um, but then also, she was really attracted to sort of fragments of bodies, um, close-ups, textures of, sort of skin, of hands. We both share a sort of obsession with hands that I tried to draw out in the book, and so I started thinking about it more as a collaboration or as this sort of second looking, sort of double seeing um, as a way, you know, to talk about also how, how seeing is so subjective, that it's, <coughs> it's, it's so hard to ever be fully objective in this, mm. in this mm. medium. And I think she understood that inherently um, in her practice, um, which is why she struggled, I think, with the term documentary or yeah, journalism, yeah, yeah. That, that she knew that. Um, you know, you can also see her. She's set up a number of pictures. She posed people. You know, she took her skills from the studio um, and used them out in the field um, in working with people. Um, and she, 
um, you'll have to help me with this because I don't remember it exactly, but she sort of left the door open a bit. What she, how this she talked about, um, for example, in the, nine, the 66 retrospective you were talking about, she said they, they yeah. had a, a the, when they realised at the end when they'd arranged all the photos that they'd left out migrant mother and Dorothea wasn't like, oh, she was like, oh, cool, okay, well, maybe we can do that. And so she had a different attitude towards her own work and that was something that you felt gave you a bit of space to do things with... Is that right? Yeah, no, that's right. And I, um, I just wanted to. There was a great sort of quote that I, I didn't want to misquote her, so I um, printed it out. You know, she's. There's an audio recording of her talking with the curator of John Sharkowski as they're planning this exhibition, and um, you can hear him say, "Oh, wait, you know, we haven't put in Migrant Mother in the '66. This is a retrospective." Um, and, and you can hear Dorothea sort of happily, gleefully almost say, oh, it's, it's okay, we can leave her out. And, uh, you know, because even at that point, the image had been, you know, a phenomenon. And, you know, John Sharkowski says, well, you know, we're not doing this show just for this small photography community. This is really for the public. You know, let's, let's think about this. And, and, and so she came around and, and Dorothea says, yeah, okay, that one picture belongs to the public, really but let's put her in some relationship in a context that people don't think of her, that people don't expect. Give her both a new interpretation and understanding. And I just, that really struck me because at that point, it felt to me that that's what I was trying to do with Lang herself. Um, that I wanted to allow her to sort of freely move out of this context or sort of really close tie to migrant mother, which she herself was trying to overcome at the end of her life, um, and allow people to imagine her or see her in, in a different way um, that we just hadn't, the work, the work was there. I've, I haven't you know, imagined this work, this work, this work was there. Mm. Um, I, I've often thought about mothers and daughters in this context. It's funny that we keep talking about migrant mother because daughters do follow their mothers in some ways and in other ways they absolutely don't. So you kind of have this kind of loyal disloyalty. And I, that's what I, what I really love about the work you've done with Lang is she sort of she speaks again she seems really modern but also I know you haven't there's nothing you know like you've stayed there's a faithfulness to the work yeah um, so I, I wanted to to walk that line in a in an interesting way and I mean because she even and then sort of following this conversation with Tchaikovsky at one point her son was assisting her with the show too and she says to him you know I kind of like the idea of someone else continuing it that, that the last picture, they were discussing the last picture in the show, and her son's there, and the curator, John Sharkowski. And at that point, she had worked for a long time. Her assistant um, was the photographer Imogen Cunningham's son. Um, he had traveled with her for many years and, and was a photographer, too. And um, she said, I kind of, like, let's end the show with a picture of Ron's. Um, that was her <laughs> assistant. And, you know, John Sharkowski was like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> um, but, that's but, she, but she was like, I can't kind of like it. Let's, let's think about it. You know, John Sharkowski won that one, but... Um, it's another she, nice family thing, almost. It's like you pass down this kind of tradition or this way of seeing, right? Yeah. The way of seeing that you sort of discovered for yourself. Yeah. I imagine you and your studio covered with things. I don't know how you... How did you know where to start? Which, how did you know it was going to be the opening picture of the sequence? I think of it as a sequence. It's like choreography or something. Yeah, and I can sort of thumb through that this is the sort of opening sequence in the book, um, you know, I think I was I jokingly, I jokingly <laughs> said before, you know, I sort of go into a trance when I'm sequencing, um, but but I think there is some truth to that. You know, thinking about being loyal and disloyal, I wanted to remove a lot of the pictures from the original context, or not remove them completely, but sort of loosen them a little bit and allow new contexts and sort of new understandings and new meanings to emerge through these different um, arrangements. Um, again, this is another picture of one of her children. But it came through looking at work, um, you know, throughout her life. And I wanted sort of a picture from the 30s to sit next to a picture from the 60s at the end of her life. Um, you know, this, this is an earlier picture. This is a picture that was made in 1964. She died in 1965. Um, this, for example, is a picture she made on the road um, in Northern California. This is a picture she made um, in the Imperial Valley, so very Southern California, almost at the Mexican border. So um, this is a Mexican laborer. Um, and, and one thing I've done 
is while they've sort of been loosened from their context in the sequencing, um, at the end of the book, there are several pages. There's a short essay by, that I've written, but then there are these notes that allow you to also hear Dorothea's voice and all of this, that um, she was interested in text and captioning, um, and her you know, relationship to words changed over her life, um, but I wanted her voice to come in at the end, but also I felt like some captions were important. Like it was, it was really nice to think about this picture, you know, in relationship to this picture, um, or the sort of the trees starting to look like the. It's hard to see, but when you look up close at the book, you'll see the sort of veins and lines in this laborer's hands, you know, and this and the swing of gesture from the sort of hands and the shadows up here in a picture like this. Um, and so sometimes I'm looking at these formal visual, visual sort of echoes and allowing those to sort of create a, a dance or a movement in the book. But then I wanted certain pictures, like I thought it was important to, for you to see the personal um, and the political um, coexisting and, and to realize that a lot of the concerns, you know, and she was, Dorothea was, of course, very politically motivated, um, but to see that those, you know, concerns haven't really gone away. But... Um, to allow you to sort of make those encounters at the end, to have a sort of freer way of experiencing the pictures, um, which she was interested in. Actually, that was something else I wanted to read um, that helped me think about the sequencing. I found um, a letter that she wrote in the late 50s to Beaumont Newhall, who was um, a curator and historian of photography. And this was, again, when she was sort of changing her thinking about photography. Um, she says, I find that it has become instinctive, habitual, necessary to group photographs. I used to think in terms of single photographs, the bullseye technique, no more. A photographic statement is what I now reach for. Therefore, these pairs, like a sentence of two words. Here we can express the relationships, equivalents, progressions, contradictions, positives and negatives, etc., etc. Our medium is peculiarly geared for this. Um, and she says in parentheses, I am just beginning to understand it. Um, and I just thought that was one really beautiful that especially at the end in those sort of parentheses that here she is, she's you know, been well recognized during her lifetime and um, you know, coming up on a career retrospective, um, but that she still says she's just still starting to understand what the medium can do and the, and the possibilities in it. And so in a way, this sort of sequence is that I was thinking of these sort of fragments or statements or um, groupings, um, thinking about language and thinking about the photograph's relationship to language um, in, in how I was sequencing them. And then I sort of you left a blank slide there um, because there are these black pages that punctuate the book too before a, a new sort of sequence starts. Um, no, it, it's... Um, I. So I'm an editor and I work with words all the time. I read like three books at once, spend my whole day reading. I try to write. Um, and so what sort of I find sort of almost... I, always, I keep finding or I keep finding that books are sort of saying that words and sort of words can never really beat pictures. And you sort of realise that when you're... Even just when you're describing that, that sequence of three, you're kind of talking about how... I knew it worked, but I didn't really know why, like, the hands related to this and how the movement across the thing. And I think that's something you've really forced me to think about in your books, like how words and pictures, how they compete or how they don't compete and how they, um, how pictures are so, I know it's a cliche, but just powerful, I guess, like how you harness that power and what you do with that. I especially think with that with things like Instagram, which drive me crazy, mm -hmm. and this idea that we can take photos of everything all the time, but yet we don't look at things properly, or the idea that we have all these millions of photos of our lives, but we scroll through them, you don't sit and contemplate them. And um, so that's why the sequencing for me is so interesting and important. Like, how do you make people stop and look properly? Yeah. Um, I, th I mean, I think it's hard. I think that, that gesture of scrolling um, and looking very quickly, um, you know, has, has consumed a lot of us um, right now. And I think it's important, you know, there's an exhibition actually called Words and Pictures right now at MoMA, and that's sort of organizing principle because I think Dorothea this is the Dorothea of, retrospective is called MoMA, just, yeah. that's up right now in New York until May. Um, 
you know, it's, it's interesting thinking about how they can live together, and that's something Dorothea thought about. Her second husband, Paul Taylor, was an economist at Berkeley, um, and they collaborated on a lot of projects. So a seminal book they made was American Exodus, um, and it's, it's photographs that really coexist on each page. There's a lot of, there's a lot of text around it. Um, and so again, I wanted to, in my book, you know, there's, there's no text around these images until you get to the very end. There's a few pages. Um, so you already have the chance to think your own thoughts about stuff. Right, and yeah. I wanted to sort of slow you and not, you know, that you have to sit with each picture. There's something about the pacing of a book that's different than scrolling or it's different than seeing images on a screen. It's also really important. You know, I realize, you know, people are coming into the show at MoMA and they're like, these prints are so beautiful. I know, like, you know, Dorothea's prints, like, she, she was very proud of her printing. Um, she would often comment on people's printing, saying he has print sense or she doesn't have print sense. For example, she was good friends with Ansel Adams, and she had, a, she had other complaints with Ansel. They were very good friends that liked to needle each other a lot, but um, she gave it to him that he, he did have print sense. Um, and so she was very proud that, that she would... Um, you know, was very proud of her prints, and, and so it is remarkable to go and stand in front of these prints um, that often we've only seen in books, or maybe, you know, even more just on a screen, um, and how and how beautiful they are, and, and just what a different kind of attention you pay, and and just how differently you see things. Um, and I wanted, you know, you to be aware too of the act of looking. I think that's in a lot of my work um, in Deep Springs as well. Um, that to call your attention to what it means to see photographically um, and what it means to look through a camera and have a camera look at you. Um, and I think that was something that Lang was very, very much aware of. Um, and then, um, I mean, just another thing, sort of removing captions, you know, it allows me to relate to pictures that maybe are seemingly unrelated, um, but then at the end you can maybe go back after you've read the notes and encounter, for example, a picture like this again. Um, these are two women who are working um, in a internment camp uh, during World War II. They're Japanese-American women um, who have been imprisoned by the American government um, in the middle of the desert. Actually, I've been to the um, site of this internment camp. It's actually, it's so remote um, that it's very close to Deep Springs, which is in a sort of remote valley um, in California where my, my first project, it just happens to be um, close to, very close to it. It's another valley that's close by is Death Valley. So it just gives you a sense of what kind of landscape um, these people were forced to, to live in. Um, you know, it was, it's, it's very cold at night. Um, it's very hot in the day. They were in very um, raw, like very rudimentary structures. Um, but they're making here, they're being forced to make um, camouflage nets for the US Army. Um, and, and something like this, something like this sort of netting or sort of capture and, and sort of relating this back to um, another, another image that Lang made of this uh, eagle on a wire, um, you know, was, was very striking. and. And haunting, um, and I and I wanted that sense to sort of subtly pervade the book. That um, you know, again, like her her politics are there, but maybe in a in a slightly more subtle, slightly more in, unusual way than we've typically encountered them. Mm. Weirdly, I was looking through your first book before knowing I was going to come and be there with you, and the picture of the eagle in um, is actually there's a picture in. Uh, Deep Springs of an archive photo that you used, which I probably won't find now because it's that sort of evening. <laughs> um, uh, exactly the same, so it actually is here. Exactly the same sort of image in that way. You probably can't see it at all at the back, but you can come have a look at the end. Yeah. Um, and there's some Deep Springs books here too that you can look through. Um, so weirdly, there's this kind of there was this echo. It was like a backwards echo because I knew I was thinking of this book more than this one. Um, it makes sense, considering what we're talking about this evening. Um, the day, we've got five minutes, then we'll open up for questions, but um, the day sleeper, that was one strand, I thought, made a sentence, you know, in the book. Um, and you notice it immediately, obviously, when you look at it first time, because there are four or five different sleepers. Yeah. I count them also. Okay. Um, there's a woman sleeping in the, you know, just in the day in her own bedroom. There's... Um, someone sleeping with a hat on them. Um, a very, very tired child yeah. that looks like she wishes she was sleeping. Um, right, or somebody right standing. And, and it connects with what you're saying sort of about politics, that 
Um, so in this sentence, there's one particular picture which I didn't really notice on the first. Um, I didn't on the first kind of look at the book, and then later with the captions that she's um, she's another migrant. She's the same as same sort of person as migrant mother, who she's um, it's my heel. Um, she she's photographed in it's a pea picker, right? Mm -hmm. So you have in Day Sleeper, you have kind of the intimate pictures of her family, and then also this political kind of. Um, reading and you have these just aesthetic, beautiful readings alongside it. So you, in, a, in one sentence, you have all these different modes and moods. Is that something that you were particularly wanting to get? And there are other strands through the book, so hands as well, or other things that you um, definitely. I mean, I started to pick up on the the sleepers. I mean, I just I just started to notice them everywhere. I mean, it's a it's a motif that I'm particularly clued into as. I studied art history as an undergrad, and so you see these sleeping, the sleeping figures throughout all of art history, um, and so the sort of sleeper as muse in a way. Um, but I came to see the sleeper, especially the day sleeper for Dorothea, as something very personal, but also, you know, obvious, obviously sort of emblematic, right, that there are these sleepers who, you know, are seeking respite from the elements. Um, they're migrants, they're on the road, um, they're forced to sleep whenever and wherever they can. Um, also, the at the end, I'll try to just quickly scroll. I guess it, there is an image of a sign that said, that's, that's where the title of the book comes from. It comes from this sign that she photographed. And the sign says, Day Sleeper. I'm just trying to get to it. Um, and so it was actually, um, you know, it's sort of mysterious. You can't tell what, um, you know, why that sign is there, what it's for. It's actually a, a trailer for um, somebody who worked a double shift on these sort of piers, actually in a neighborhood of Richmond, California, which is just north of Berkeley, where Lang lived her whole life. So this was a neighborhood that was very, very close to home. It was in during World War II. Um, it's also where the image of Rosie the Riveter comes from. These many African-Americans and many women were populating these piers um, and were working in shipyards um, when men were away fighting um, during the war and um, this was a neighborhood that was right next to Berkeley um, I mean she could have walked there um, so it, so I mean there was this sort of there were politics happening you know everywhere around her um, that was sort of inescapable and, and completely intertwined with her everyday life um, but this was a sign so that somebody could sleep during the day before working their second shift um, later that night um, but I liked the idea um, of the day sleeper as somebody who right if you if you sleep during the day and you're awake all night suddenly you're your experience of the world or the way you see it suddenly shifts, right? Like something's like slightly hmm. off. Um, you know, it, I feel like I've been there when you, you know, you've, you've stayed, um, you stayed up all night or you've slept too long during the day, and suddenly the world feels slightly familiar, but also slightly strange. Hmm. Um, and in a way, I wanted that to be your encounter with this Dorothea Lang that hmm. I was showing you. That um, it's familiar, but it's also you're having this sort of new experience that maybe you don't quite. Um, understand or immediately connect with, um, but you are sort of trying to find your way. And I also saw, yeah, the sleeper as this as this beautiful way of talking about photography and seeing and um, sort of the gaze and being allowed to look freely at someone um, when someone else is sleeping. But there's also this interiority, right? When your eyes are closed, you know. And I look if you look at someone sleeping, for example, and, and their eyes are closed, um, they're not looking back at you. Um, but you're also imagining, you're not sort of seeing what they're seeing. You're sort of forced to imagine what they're seeing, and in a way... Um, it's a loving gaze. I've never looked at anyone I've not loved asleep, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a sort of... Yes. Yeah, um, something you sort of special. Hold them. Yeah, yeah, you hold yeah. them in a, in, a, in a way. And, um, yeah, so I, so I wanted sort of all of, mm. all of those things and, and other things to sort of be be rippling through it. So the, the sleeper sort of comes into almost every segment in some way, mm. um, or the, the day sleeper. And oh. I mean, oh, and then, then the last note, <laughs> along these lines, I started to not only see these pictures, so she photographed, you know, people on the road, migrant workers, but then also her daughter-in-law or her husband or her child, again, on the cover of the book. Um, but she said there's this sort of am amazing quote that I encountered in, that I read in an oral history that um, she gave. And she says, um, I think I was born tired. 
I have friends who say I've never been tired in my life. And I've been tired all my life, every day of my life. I remember when I was only maybe 10 years old, being as tired as a human could be and wishing that I could sleep forever just because I was so tired. <laughs> so, um, yeah, reading, you know, and then reading something like, like I'm not imagining this. <laughs> She's seeing herself in, in these sleepers. Mm. Um, yeah. I was thinking another political point is that only people who sleep in the day are people who either work at night, work too much, or don't have to work at all, right? So yeah. you have this kind of double-edged political reading. Also, the, the quote that the ends on is, got sleep and day sleep. I won't ruin it for everyone, but it's got sleep in it too. I've just occurred she, to you as you said Right, that. exactly. She quotes, <laughs> she quotes Shakespeare's The Tempest. Um, and there's a lovely um, nod to sort of dreaming and sleeping. Um, so I'll let, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, that sleeping and that physical exhaustion comes from her mm. experience um, of polio, of, of work. Um, you know, it's very complicated. She... Um, you know, she worked tirelessly throughout her life and still, at the end of her life, didn't feel like she had gotten to work enough. Um, and, I mean, just, I wanted to, one other note that I wanted to comment on. So, for example, um, let me go back just a little bit. You know, one thing that I was sort of privy to in looking at the contact sheets is I got to see, um, you know, in this picture, it says open all night. So there's, again, this sort of mm. idea of being awake at night. Um, but she had filled an entire contact sheet with photographs of this movie marquee, um, which made me wonder why, why, you know, it can't just be the open all night. Why was she so obsessed with it? Um, and through my own research, I discovered that Young Lovers was a film that was made um, by Ida Lupino, who was a polio survivor like Lang, a female director, so very rare at the time, very rare still today. Um, and, and the film was about the story of a young dancer, choreographer, who was also stricken with the disease of polio. And so this, this image resonated, or this sort of more key really resonated personally with her. Um, and it, at one point, also in an in a, uh, audio interview, she says, I was physically disabled, and no one who hasn't lived the life of a semi-cripple knows how much that means. I think it perhaps was the most important thing that happened to me, and formed me, and guided me, and instructed me, and helped me, and humiliated me all those things at once. I've never gotten over it, and I'm aware of the force and the power of it. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question, and it's yeah. enormous and annoying, and I to answer it, and then I'll um, take questions the rest of you. So is there a female gaze? Can a woman, you're a woman photographer, Dorothea is, how is it different? Where is it different? What does it, how is it different in the world? Is it possible, you know, we talk about the male gaze all the time, but what is the female gaze? That is a mean question. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I, got, I um, this is a question that I've gotten sort of making work in my first sort of book, Deep Springs, um, and body of work um, was, you know, about my place in sort of history of photography as it relates to the American West and thinking about my experience of the West as a woman making work in a in a landscape that I sought to saw to be um, particularly masculine, um, you know, inhabited by not only men, sort of the cowboy, um, but also pictured um, by men, um, you know, until, until Dorothea came along. Um, but there still is this sort of machismo associated with it. So, I, you know, this question is um, one I'm familiar with. And I don't know um, if, you know, and if there's a particularly feminine gaze, that's something that I, I struggle with as a, as a term. Um, but I do think, right, that there is um, a more feminine way of working that's, right, that your um, place, sort of position in the world and sort of how you react to that um, place <clears throat> and positioning. Um, and how people react is, to is you. Gendered, right, yeah. Is gendered, um, and inescapably gendered. And um, I had written down a quote relating to this um, because this is something that um, Lang herself really struggled with her entire life. I mean, at one point, she wanted to make work. She couldn't make work. Um, she was working with her second husband, Paul Taylor. They wanted to be on the road all the time. Um, she, they str were struggling financially. It was in the aftermath of the Depression. During the Depression, you know, she gave up her home. Um, and just had a studio that she would sleep in at certain points so that she could make work. She had two young children at that point. 
and she she put her children in foster care uh, so that she could go on the road and make work. Um, it was you know it was she was and she. There were other struggled women with that. who made that decision. Right, yes. and there are other people who made that decision at the time, so it mm. wasn't entirely unusual, but it's something she struggled with um, her whole life. Um, and, and she said, you know, what it takes to pursue my purposes is uninterrupted time, or time that you interrupt when you want to interrupt it. It means living an utterly different way of life, inexplicable to some people, and I'm not focusing this entirely on myself, I'm speaking of the difference between the role of the woman as an artist and the man. There is a sharp difference, a gulf. Um, the woman's position is immeasurably more complicated. Um, and, and she was speaking about that um, also in relationship to this idea that you know, she wanted, at the end of her life, to photograph even more than she felt she had been able to. She said, um, I would like to be able to photograph constantly, every hour, every conscious hour, <laughs> and assemble a record of everything to which I have a direct response. So again, Instagram. going back to Instagram, right? <laughs> um, she said, I would like to accumulate a file of images which would be a complete visual diary. You know, and that, you know, so it, it's, you know, her working life was, was fraught. She felt like she didn't get to work enough. Um, and I think, one of the great things for me and um, in this book, you know, it, it feels like for me, I'm trying to help Dorothea sort of pick up where she left off. And, and I was able to sort of see this complete visual diary that in sort of the time since, um, you know, she stopped working in 1965 and now here we are in 2020, um, you know, that I'm able to look back with the benefit of time and see this life's work as a sort of visual diary. And in a way, I wanted to do that um, with the book too, not to sort of arrange it necessarily chronologically or categorically, um, but to sort of show the messiness too of a life. And, um, you know, I think she implied that she had somehow failed to lead a completely visual life. Um, but the amazing thing for me in experiencing the archive was that, mm -hmm. it, that t you know, there's 40,000 pictures. Like, I don't think she, <laughs> she lived um, an unvisual life. Um, and so, you know, we uh, get to see this extraordinary uh, archive that, you know, is massive in its scope and its depth. And um, well, it's almost a female thing, isn't it? To underestimate what you've done. Right, to exactly. Not <laughs> to not be not straightforwardly female, but right. can be. But can be. Um, yeah. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Have any of you got any questions then? We'll open it out. Okay, so she, you mentioned that you looked at 40 years' worth of her work. I just wonder if you noticed any particular themes that evolved or her interest in the subject matter, how that changed over that 40-year period. I mean, I think, you know, there were definitely these different periods. Um, there was the sort of studio portrait period of, of 10 years. There was the early family pictures, which I think she came back to at the end of her life. Um, in the... 30s and 40s, she was making work on and off for the government. Um, late 30s, um, she was employed by the Farm Security Administration and so was on the road. Um, and then was employed um, 
to document, I mean, this is a strange thing to document the, in, like, the imprisonment of the Japanese Americans. The government actually hired her to make that work. Um, they had originally wanted to show that they weren't doing anything wrong, that it's not as bad as it sounded, and then they saw her pictures. Um, <laughs> they realized it really didn't look good, and they actually confiscated them all. Um, and she didn't know, she thought that work had been destroyed and only found out the year before she died that the pictures still existed and um, were held by the National Archives. So you can actually go there and see some of the pictures now. Um, and actually, it, they had also hired Ansel Adams, and um, the government used some of his pictures. That was where there was a fraught relationship at the time. Um, they used some of his pictures, and she was furious with him because she um, thought he was creating propaganda. Anyway, so there, there are these different things. And at the end of her life, she came back to making pictures with her family. I think, um, in a way, she was making pictures with a lot of her grandchildren, too, and um, trying to make up for, in a way, lost family time. And so that sort of became this sort of cycle that she came back to. I mean, she photographed throughout her life her, her family um, and, and her home. Um, there are pictures in the book that are in her, in her Berkeley garden. She was obsessed with trees. You'll see trees running throughout her life, um, actually. Um, let's see if I can get to the end here really quickly. There's some beautiful pictures of trees. And I just found, like, contact sheet after contact sheet of um, trees. Um, so these are just these are some contact sheets, some four by five um, pictures um, around her home in Berkeley. Um, but the way also that like trees became bodies and, and these sort of inanimate objects became sort of alive and and embodied um, that was something that I saw constantly happening. And also this obsession with hands. There's a great quote that I also put in the book that um, she talks about being a child and going with her mother to church. She said, we weren't particularly church-going people, um, but my mother really liked the music. And she remembers as a child seeing the conductor's hands sort of waving. Um, and I just felt like she saw those conductor's hands waving in sort of almost every picture that she made throughout the rest of her life. Um, and even at the end, yeah, they're, um, they're there. There's um, yeah, one thing I didn't touch on. This is a picture. And this was also sort of a guiding gesture, I'd say, um, that she made. Um, this was a picture um, that she hung in her 66 retrospective. She called it Paul's Hands. And so I'd seen it like this. And actually, just to show you, this is a sort of install shot from the uh, 66 retrospective. And I showed it to Joe, and she said, oh, it's like, I didn't realize sort of Tillman's ask. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these sort of different sizes, um, sort of, they're you know, very collage-like on the wall. There's a lot of movement in the way she hung things on the wall. I mean, there's a lot of even more experimental walls than this. Um, but I had seen the picture here on the wall. And then when I was looking in the archive, I realized that it's... Um, this isn't a picture actually by Lang. Um, it's a picture that's of Lang. Um, this is Lang, and this is her husband, Paul Taylor. So somebody else took this picture. I don't know who it was. Um, and so she's gone in to this negative that ended up in her, in her possession um, 10 years after the picture was made. And she's gone in and she's cropped it. Like, very, very closely, you'll see this. You know, we're just looking here at a fragment of the picture. Um, and I thought that was such a beautiful gesture, this idea of wanting to get closer to something. So I think, like, I saw that throughout her life, too, this gesture of, like, you know, even just the way she moved and this desire to get closer to these bodies, to these um, objects, whatever she saw. Um, and so there it is, like in this sort of crop of wanting to get closer to this thing that, that you love. Like, I mean, I couldn't imagine it sort of more beautifully embodied than here. And then even the crop becomes an embrace or that gesture of like wanting to hold something or be held. And um, yeah, and so in a way, sort of this picture, it didn't end up in the book, um, but it became sort of a guiding principle of like, where do I sort of see myself um, sort of embracing her and this sort of gesture, you know, that I feel like the whole book is this sort of similar embrace. Um, anyway. um, there was a question, was it, that, yeah, you wanted to ask a question. Um, kind of, I mean, thank you for your yeah. kind of absolute study of this. <clears throat> Photographer, I'm struggling to find some words here, really, because you get back on the feminine gaze that you mentioned. That there's Steichen and, and Strand who who did made New York what what we all think those iconic photographs are buildings. That was buildings. We have here we had a huge retrospective on a man called Don McCullen mm -hmm. at the at the Tate. I know his work. Very 
moving wartime photographs, very, very striking. And then you get Stiglitz, who took pictures of O'Keefe, which was a woman, and he was transported by taking wonderful photographs of her. And you get um, Man Ray, who did the same with Lee Miller. But then you have Miller and Lang and Arbus. They kind of take photographs through the lens of, of tenderness, that you called, of family. And I think that's the female gaze. I don't know. I mean, I'm just... Well, yeah, you can't really have... Um... Thank you. Yeah. And the politics of that gaze is women can look at children in a way that men can't, right? Women, right? It's hard. It's hard to generalise. It's hard to generalise. Yeah, that's what I find. But I know, I think, I think that's a... <laughs> and that's why I said it was a mean question. <laughs> but when you take Arbus, yeah. she's extreme in a way, isn't she? Yeah. She yeah. And the Holocaust... But it's, it's not particularly... Right, it's not a particularly tender gaze, I would say. Arbus's gaze. Tender in the sort of seeing herself in in these people, I think yeah. too. That that's maybe where the the connection lies. But I mean, just one you mentioned Strand, Dorothea Lange. She loved Strand's work, and just one sort of talking about place as a woman. She um, went to Taos with her first husband early on. Um, he wanted to go make some landscapes, and so they lived there, and they were going to be there through the winter. Um, and she tells this story about watching every day. I mean, she was essentially just trying to keep her family alive. She said it was the coldest winter she'd ever experienced, and she just couldn't keep the fire going in this sort of very rough, I mean, I wouldn't even call it a house, um, that they were living in. Of course, Maynard would go out every day and paint and leave her to sort of tend to things, and she would look sort of longingly out the window and want to be out there too, and she saw this black town car essentially drive past every day. Um, and she found out later it was Paul Strand um, going out, um, being driven around to make pictures. And she really sort of shook her fist at that. Um, but it was around the time he made, he made this sort of famous um, picture of a church in Taos, New Mexico. And so, so they were there at the same time. And um, yeah, you wonder if she had sort of had the freedom to make work then and there, what, what mm. would have been. Also, I suppose women are around children more, or have been in their lives, so maybe that's a natural subject. I don't, yeah, there is, it's a deep thing that we can't answer in. Well, all of them um, suffered from guilt, didn't they? I mean, Miller... That's human, though. Yeah, that's a human course. condition. And, and she just told us, and, and Arvis, didn't she kill herself? She? Yeah. Yeah, she did. Um, so we've got, sorry, sorry. sorry. It, it could go on forever, and I would... Yeah. Um, uh, one, one more question. Have you got one in the back? Red sweater. Thanks, Sam. Um, I was very struck by your description of these sequences of photographs in which Lang almost seems to be kind of creeping up on her subject. And I was wondering, when, as you were looking at those and making your own selections, whether you found that there was a kind of final image, almost, where her relationship to her subject kind of clicks into place, or whether it's more of a kind of negotiation um, of you know, her place and the place of her subject and sort of you know, searching for the, for the distance that she wants to have from it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there are any examples um, that I would sort of go to in the book. I mean, I think you'll see in the pictures with her family at the end of her life, she's, she's sort of very close. Um, there's some beautiful pictures um, of her um, grandson that she makes uh, and in sort of the notes, um, she says, um, Gregor came over to practice today. Um, and they're sort of like, she's back sort of in the studio almost, um, and she sees his hands in the light, but like they're all from the same vantage point. Like there is this like where she's comfortably close, and I wonder if that's you know only something you, you could do with, with family, somebody you know very, very closely, um, that you still see her of moving and getting and wanting to get closer to people that she's not as comfortable with. I think it's it's in a way, um, I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience, but like, I almost want to be seen first in a lot, of, and I almost feel like she felt the same way that you sort of want to be seen first and then you want to be forgotten, that you want to like them to be aware of the camera, that you know, that I think you know, she was never sneaking pictures, it never feels like that. But then she makes pictures when people have sort of forgotten that, she, that her presence has been acknowledged and accepted. Um, and then she finds a freedom to move around. Um, and so I feel like that she sort of mastered that. That was a sort of lifelong um, 
way of a way of working, but then um, she got she got very good at that. Um, you know that I think um, you know she she said um, you know her dis- her disability also helped her in sort of the way she worked with people. Um, you know that again like it made her stand out, but also sort of be seen and sort of accepted in a different way too. And I think um, you know she she learned a good way. Uh, a good working method um, to both deal with that for herself um, but then sort of allow it to be like a place of sort of coming together, sort of meeting in the middle um, with working with people and I think um, you you see that you see that in pictures um, that she makes um, you know I mean I just I love this picture too yeah this sort of mutual way of looking at each other yeah Thank you so much for Thank you. sharing Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.